Hey guys, happy Halloween. Happy Halloweeny. So we just released our Halloween episode that had three and a half hours and 21 podcasts represented it. Wow. That's good stuff right there. At the time we're recording this, which is the night before Halloween, it's already Halloweeny E. It's already had like sixteen thousand listens. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yes. Pretty Whoa. So, and it's been it's been a lot of good response. A lot of people have liked what they heard. We liked it. We had a very big variety on there. I know, man. What's that that was great. Thank you guys for doing that. But because of the fact that it was three and a half hours, I couldn't release it on Halloween. You're not going to get through it in one day with other stuff going on. Yeah. So we released it early. But then I was like, but then we don't have anything to release for Halloween. But never fear. Except on Halloween. You can fear on Halloween. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. Our friends at Astonishing Legends did a special little episode. And you know how these guys are. They can't do anything in 10 minutes like everybody else. (laughs) It takes them that long just to introduce themselves and stuff. So... I allowed them to go a tad bit over, uh, about 20 minutes over. How cool. So they did a special 30-minute segment that we're releasing by itself today on Halloween. Wow. And you guys guys are going to like this because this is an awesome story. And they somehow managed to do it in less than seven episodes. So, <laughs> hey, they like to get the details out now. They don't want us to be wondering what's happening. But they they definitely had some fun with it. Good. And, and you'll see they poked a little bit of fun at us and oh, poked did? a little bit of fun at themselves. And I bet Forrest talked about my hair. He did not talk about your hair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, enjoy this and uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, guys. And a huge thank you to Forrest and Scott for doing this for us. Yeah, thanks, guys. What is this? What are, what are we doing tonight? What are we doing here, Forrest? Oh, I love to ambush you with a story that uh, we've done very minimal research on, but it's <laughs> one that is very dear to my heart in a in a creepy way. And of course, this is for uh, our good friends Jerry and Tracy Polly over at Hillbilly Horror Stories. And I think we tried to do something last year for Halloween for them, and next thing we knew, we, we woke up and it was Thanksgiving. Like, oh my gosh, we we just. <laughs> <laughs> Time flew by so fast, and it's like, well, let's try and get something for them uh, this year. But, of course, we may not even have given him enough time because we're going to spring this on him. But what, So tell me story. this. What, yeah. yeah, so tell me this before you go any further. What is the sure. setup for this? Why are we talking about this? What What did he well, ask you to do? It was a... It was a uh, it was a Facebook message, I believe, months ago in advance because he's he actually knows how to produce stuff ahead of time, unlike us. We're... We try and whip it together, but it was just a request like, hey, you guys want to come on and tell a story about, you know, just something spooky. Could be anything, really. You know, maybe about 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, 10 minutes for just us to get the preamble in here. The, uh, yeah, the intro. Like, no, I think the whole thing's supposed to be around 10 minutes. So we're going to try our best to whittle down a story that I said was uh, something that I learned about when I was young. And maybe... Not a small child, but old enough to read the Time Life books and, you know, on their series of ghosts and all kinds of uh, kind of crazy stories. That's where we got our information from, as we've said before on the show. In this case, it was about a, something that kind of creeped me out just thinking about it before I knew a lot about ghosts or poltergeists or how that all works. And it's I remember the stories being called the Moving Coffins of Barbados. Ooh, yes, I've heard of these. Although I don't, I confess, I don't know a whole lot about it, or I didn't at least until you gave me these notes about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I think I, I told you about it, and you actually looked up, uh, this would be a, a weeks ago before we actually, actually did anything on it. 
uh, you said, well, it's actually called the Chase Vault. It's like, well, that didn't ring a bell. I just remember Barbados and I remember moving coffins and it was really creepy. And just the thought of going into a crypt and seeing everything in disarray. And I hope that they weren't open, but just, ugh. so it just, yeah, that always stuck with me, that, that story. And I thought like, you know, one day I'll have a podcast before even knowing what that is. And uh, we'll be on here talking about it. And certainly that didn't occur, but I stuck that in my brain bank someday to, to talk about it again. So here we are. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Chase Vault? It, by the way, I'm going to stick yeah. with the Moving Coffins of Barbados. It's a far better name. <laughs> yeah, I know the the Chase Vault just sounds like your local ATM there, <laughs> you know, at, at the shopping mall. Uh, well, we're going to take the information mostly from just two sources here to keep this simple. One will be the Wikipedia entry on it about the Chase Vault, C-H-A-S-E, and, and Vault as it's usually spelled. The other one is an article by our good friend, Brian Dunning. I'll, I'm not sure he knows about us, but we yeah. occasionally will turn to him for the skeptical point of view, but he does pretty decent research. So, you know, I tend to trust it. I don't really trust everything totally, but he's a good source to go to. And he is the author of the Skeptoid blog and podcast, and we've mentioned him a, a ton of times before. Yeah, and, but we and, don't uh, yeah. really know him. I don't know if we can call no. him our good friend. I think, in fact, the only interaction... <laughs> he feels like a good friend. I know, yeah. but the only interaction I remember having with him was when there was some heated Twitter debate about something, and, oh, and yes. his response was, please stop tagging me in this. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. No, that was the the uh, the, the photo from the dock at Jalowit. Uh, yes. Amelia Earhart Oh, that's right. He didn't want to talk about it. He said his point. And he made his point and didn't want to talk yeah. about it anymore, which I completely no, understand, Mr. Dunning, if you ever <laughs> listen to this. But yeah. No, but it's, uh, uh, like I said, his, his articles are great to, to point to, to, again, see a rational and uh, cogent argument on it. And that's what we did here. So we're going to take a few of these uh, facts and elements of the story. But first off, what I remember hearing about it was that it was this kind of this creepy burial vault which is you know it's creepy to start with but over the years uh, people had gone to rebury or bury some additional people in this vault and they cracked open this concrete sealed vault door which was really heavy on its own and they would discover that the coffins had all been moved and not just shifted, you know, from weight, but like one would be standing, uh, you know, headlong against the wall. Right. Uh, one would be totally askew, like off the shelf. It, it was just crazy, like more than what would happen during an earthquake. Although earthquake is one of the more rational explanations for this possibly happening. But the fact that they this happened again and again over the years, and they kept coming back and taking a look at it. And it kept happening. It's like, oh my gosh, what is going on there? That that just creeps me out. And and then maybe it's that uh, Poltergeist the movie thing where one coffin's open and you see a yeah yeah just a weathered they pop out of it skeleton. Yeah. yeah, that that was the scary part of it. Uh, not just uh, coffins themselves, but it just didn't make me wonder. It's like, is there some kind of spiritual ghostly force that's that strong to move these big coffins? And I I just always wondered about it. So that's the basic story that I remember, but. The facts of it are, is that the Chase Vault is a family burial vault. You could call it a mausoleum, or it's, it's a multi-coffin tomb. And it's in the cemetery of the Christ Church Parish Church in Oystens, Christ Church, Barbados. And the current Christ Church Parish Church, uh, located there, was built in 1935. And it's the fifth parish church on that site. This site has not had a good history of 
keeping the the churches there intact. The original structure was built in 1629, and that was located near Dover Beach. And in 1669, that church was destroyed by a flood. And here's some gruesome details. The flood had scattered coffins and bones from the church cemetery all over the beach. Oh. So you got to... that. Well, uh, Greyfriars... Uh, remember yeah. that happening during a, a, a bad rainstorm or during the winter that would happen? Yeah. That happened here. The next church that was constructed was destroyed in a hurricane in 1780. And then another parish church was built in 1786. And that was again destroyed by the 1831 hurricane. And then the church after that was destroyed by fire in 1935. And so that 1935 church is the one that remains, I believe, and it does sound like the Monty Python sketch about the guy building the castle in the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> that caught fire, birth, fell over, and that sunk into the swamp. Yes. So it's um, it's got an interesting past to it. But, of course, it's mostly famous for this story, this legend of coffins mysteriously moving around by themselves. And apparently in 1820, the governor of Barbados and the members of his staff did an investigation. They they wanted to get to the bottom of this, and they investigated it and had no explanations at all. And according to the story, each of the coffins was buried separately. And of course, after that, they've had no problems with it. And today, you can go visit that vault, uh, but I believe it's empty. Empty. So I guess after all them trying to get out, they finally they finally did bail. They just moved out all the bodies. No, and they they were reburied. Oh, yeah. okay. If, if that were happening, that was my point about uh, the ex the exploration uh, by the governor of Barbados in eighteen twenty. Is that I mean, that's part of the story that they couldn't explain it. They found it creepy, so they just said, "Well, let's just put people in their own places here in the ground." And this vault is itself buried underground like a lot of mausoleums and there's stairs to go down into it. So anything in the earth is even spookier. And if you do want to visit, Barbados is a lovely island country in the Lesser Antilles in the West Indies in the Caribbean region or Caribbean region of North America, depending on how you want to say it. You know what and, I think of whenever somebody yeah. says Antilles, that was <laughs> Captain Antilles that I think C-3PO was used to be with back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, that was the first time sure I heard the word the Antilles. So when I was a little kid, I had no idea of the Lesser Antilles Islands. So I learned <sighs> I the word Antilles from Star Wars, the first one. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, it's been around for a while. You know, the uh, it's in the coastal area called Oystens, and you can see a lot of videos on there. It just looks like a lot of fun. Like oh, it looks Caribbean beautiful. Place. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is gorgeous, uh, and it has this one kind of weird, creepy story that goes with it, but the parish of Christ Church is, it goes back a long ways. It's one of the original 11 political divisions of Barbados, and that name has survived. It's it's one of the names of the six original parishes created by Governor Sir William Tufton in 1629. Mm. But here are the origins of the story itself, that the creepy coffin-moving story. The story first appeared in print in a book titled Transatlantic Sketches, and that was published in 1833 and written by General Sir James Edward Alexander. General Alexander was Scottish by birth, but was an officer in the British Army. He was also an adventurer and author. Now, this is also according to Brian Dunning's article, uh, and General James's own account, I'm going to tell you like who was buried there. 
Uh, researchers, to start with, believe that the vault was built for someone named James Elliot around 1724, but Elliot never used it himself. And then about 83 years later, in 1807, a woman known as Mrs. Thomasina Goddard was the first to be buried there. Mrs. Goddard would still remain in the vault when wealthy landowner Colonel Thomas Chase purchased it in 1808 to unfortunately bury his daughter, Mary Ann Maria Chase. In 1812, Colonel Thomas Chase would have to bury another one of his daughters, Dorcas Chase. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. What was that name? Dorcas. D-O-R-C-A-S. It is, I believe, from the Book of Apostles in the oh. New Testament. So it's a biblical name, not a slam or a meme as you might encounter today. Okay. Yeah, I knew, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask about oh, well, that. Well, in high school, I myself was called a Dorcas, but I think that well, that's Well, I know. think that's D-O-R-K-U-S. K-U-S. yeah, good point. Good this point. is D-O-R-C-A-S. Yes. Yeah, well, this is also another uh, story of tragedy, because only a month later in 1812 the sealed vault was opened again for the burial of Thomas Chase, who had taken his own life, Colonel Thomas Chase. And he was a man despised for his bad temper and cruel treatment of his slaves. But this would be the first instance to be witnessed of this disturbing event. The coffins of the Chase girls were strewn about, moved, and scattered. Alexander described the state of the vault when it was opened in order to, quote, to receive the body of another infant, the four coffins, all of lead, all very heavy, were much disturbed, end quote. And when the vault was opened in 1816 and 1819, the coffins were again found scattered, helter-skelter. Hmm. Alexander goes on to say, quote, Each time that the vault was opened, the coffins were replaced in their proper situations. That is, three on the ground, side by side, and the others laid on them. The vault was then regularly closed. The door, a massive stone, which required six or seven men to move, was cemented by masons. And though the floor was of sand, there were no marks of footsteps or water. The last time the vault was opened in 1819, Lord Combermere was then present, and the coffins were found confusedly thrown about the vault, some with their heads down and others up. What could have occasioned this phenomenon? and no other vault in the island has this ever occurred. Was it an earthquake which occasioned it, or the effects of an inundation in the vault? End quote. And different variations of this story would appear over the years, uh, one account showing up in 1844 and one in 1860. So that is the essential story of the moving coffins, and uh, part of that story is that the floor, the sand was raked, and this is, I think this is also part that I loved as a kid because it's like, well, what do they do to like maybe try and catch who was doing this if this was a vandalism is that they, they rake the floor to get it smooth. They sealed the door, the vault door with concrete. And I believe one of the two gentlemen described in the story put their Masonic signet rings into the concrete. And I remember that specifically that aspect, like, well, there you go. That's if it was going to be broken, they would know that it was disturbed. And, and there's only one way to get in unless you had tunneled in from somewhere else. But that seems very unlikely. So huh. that is the story. But was it true? Now, if you look to uh, two of our, again, our favorite skeptics, Brian Dunning and Joe Nickel, they both have uh, theories on this. One is that Joe Nickel will say, well, if you look at the elements of the original story, they have a lot of Masonic elements to them, of the Freemasons. 
in that this story may not be so much of fact and lore based on something that actually happened, but if you look at it, it may just be an allegorical story from the Masons to elucidate all of their teachings and belief, their symbolism, their symbology, both of those things. And we find that also, I I think when Joe took a look at the Oak Island mystery, that was a lot of his stuff. We'll look at it. It's the vault. It's the Royal Arch. It's the sound of the hammer pounding on the walls to, uh, you know, that is symbolic of Masonic teachings for some reason. We're not going to get into all that. You can certainly read that on your own if you want. But all these elements, uh, the coffins being positioned in a certain way, maybe in certain directions. So to Joe, this all just seems like it's a story told to kind of further the teachings and have meaning for those who know uh, what Masonic teachings are all about. I'm not sure what the purpose would be for that. Yeah, also, does I mean, I don't know. But he's always blaming the Masons. Well, yeah, that's... and you're suggesting, I mean, if you look at Oak Island, so we're suggesting that that's all just an allegory to teach you something. I mean, why can't it be both? Why can't it be allegorical and factual? Well, I think it would have a purpose. Okay, so if it's going to have, if it's not just a story, let's pretend that they were actually there. Those coffins were there. And they were scattered about what would cause that. The first thing that people think is, again, as we said earlier, it's it's the earthquake. But that region doesn't really have earthquakes like no. that. And it would take a significant one to toss. Which the, people would these notice. heavy coffins. Around. By the way. Yeah. What's there that? Would, the people would notice the earthquake. There would be yeah, records. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that would be, yeah, people would just think, well, there you go. That's, that's what it was caused from. The other one, which may be more uh, hold water, as we say, would be an inundation a flooding of the vault. And then you wonder, you know, by his rough calculations, Mr. Dunning would say that it's possible that that chamber received enough water that those coffins could float and the, the bottom being porous enough that it would drain and it could leave those coffins askew. So in his mind, that is, it's a possibility if you look at it as actually having happened. Now, his point, Mr. Dunning, is that, well, the two more likely things is that, one, Joe Nickel may be right in that it is just uh, an allegorical story by Freemasons to uh, illustrate a point and some principles of Freemasonry and to put that imagery in there. Because there's another story that popped up that was very similar to that Barbados story about coffins being moved. I believe somebody taking their own life as well. And you have that story. And then Mr. Dunning makes the other point that... There is no proof as far as he can find that actually any coffins were interred in the vault itself. Those records of those people dying, that is true. Those are in the church records. You can find that out, the death and birthdays of people. So those are real recorded people that actually died. We're just not sure. There's no real proof that they actually were buried in the vault to begin with. So that's his point. Yeah, well, My because point, there's yeah. no records, then it can't have happened. Because, well, you have right, to if doubt. it's not in I, writing, yeah. there's right. no way anybody would have put a coffin in there and not written it down somewhere. <laughs> so we're ruling this out. I mean, you know, that's just, to me, I mean, I get that point. It's like, okay, yeah. well, so we need more yeah. information. If you're going to say they never buried anyone without records in this area, okay. Right. You know, because here's what I'll agree with. Yeah. Uh, people would notice an earthquake in Barbados. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. going to notice the rain. It's probably, if it probably rains a lot all the time, 
they're not going to notice that. So they're never going to stop and be like, hey, I wonder if the vault's filling up with water right now, or the mausoleum over here. or the, yeah. You know, they're not ever going to really think about that. They would notice an earthquake. So that makes sense. The floating of the coffins, they did all the math on that. It sort of makes sense to yeah. me. You know, and there, that and also there's not a spooky component to this necessarily. The story itself, yeah. the idea of it is spooky, but there's not an accompanying ghost story or legend or don't go in no, there or um, you know, that, that, yeah, that goes you know, along with uh, it. But I'll tell you what, yeah, as a kid, it's... Uh, it's that moment of discovery, you know, when you're so, when you're maybe your son's age too, you're between 10 and 14 or 15 before you, you know, you can drive. I mean, I'm still fascinated by this stuff, but when you're younger like that, it's envisioning that moment of, of discovery. It's that Indiana Jones moment and it's something kind of shocking. And, and again, my imagination just ran wild. Like you chip open this sealed concrete vault and the floor is smooth. You don't see any footprints. It doesn't look like it's been flooded. That's also part of the original story. Yeah, that there uh, wasn't any counter water. No water marks had or not, anything. Yeah. Exactly. They had not noticed any water. That certainly could happen, but there didn't seem to be flooded in any way, even though they do get flooding around that area. But of course, that was moved after that one incident. The uh, I believe that the parish church was moved to higher ground. But it's the idea that you walk in there and it is that that. Yeah, that that still creeps me out. That poltergeist scene in the movie where the coffin bursts through the floor yeah. of the house yeah. and then swings open, and then it's as oh that, yeah. So that that's what scared me is that what is doing that. And if you look at it analytically, as we know now, it's like well, I think both Scott and I believe that poltergeist activity is possible. See, if you look at it from Joe Nichols' point of view, or maybe even Brian Dunning's, that does not exist. That can't be a possibility. So the story must have been false, you know, and it's very likely like, okay, maybe there was water, but it's more, probably more likely that the story was just made up to begin with. Well, and that's a form of confirmation bias based on exceptional rationality, this denial right. that anything supernatural or unexplainable can can occur, then leads them around to finding, doing whatever it takes to disprove it. I mean, this is how right. our court system works, so I, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying... yeah. You're right. If you're if you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you're going to find a way to get the story around to your personal belief system, which is what they're doing. Right, right. But they well, and mean, their and in their minds, their belief system is the only one that's right. Well, it solves a lot of problems. You don't have to think about all this weird spooky spectral stuff because it doesn't exist. You don't have to consider it how that would happen. But I think you and I both include that in our reasoning in that, okay, let's say that that is possible, that kind of powerful poltergeist activity. Then I wonder about the logic of that. It's like, well, we only have the stories we've heard of to go off of. It's not like this stuff is measured or is wanting to be measured by by the broad scientific community, as we often say. But is there enough poltergeist activity to to have moved something that heavy? Where I believe, I was going to say Colonel Mustard. It is not. It is Colonel Thomas. Um, Mayonnaise? Yes. <laughs> Special sauce? <laughs> no. Uh, it was, uh, I'm sorry. Sriracha? Uh, General Sriracha? Sorry, I'll stop. The... <laughs> I am having fun, though. <laughs> that is fun. If I could if I could come back with a name quickly here. Uh, Colonel Thomas Chase. That it's he's that's the vault's. Oh, name. that guy. I thought, if I, of course, I remembered his <laughs> name. I guy. thought you were trying to think of somebody else. Okay. No, but uh, General So was uh, another thought that just yeah, this yes. guy was a colonel. Though. Yeah, General yeah. So. That's 
That's too easy. But his chicken was so much more delicious. (laughs) In any case, his coffin, it was said, was found head down and propped up against the wall. It apparently took six men, eight men, to carry his coffin because I believe these were lead-lined, if not totally, just totally made out of lead. Seems too heavy. I mean, I don't want to look look in the face of, of... Of the math that uh, that Dunning yeah. and Nickel did, but like a right. lead floating a lead line coffin, I mean, it doesn't unless it was really well built. It just doesn't seem it's like all, it would happen. Like, it's all a, about displacement, my friend. That's all I can tell you. That's yeah, like but I mean, I, is it airtight yeah. on the top? Like, wouldn't the water just start spilling over the top edge before it would re- achieve buoyancy? I think it it floats before the water spills over the top. All things being equal, but it's it's why I think you can make a concrete boat. Uh, yes, you can. You there, displace, I know yeah. for a fact there are concrete boats, but well, I, there you, you know, go. I don't know. My my point, you know, just looking at it as poltergeist activity, like are poltergeists that strong? Well, to illustrate a point, I can't remember the name of the author, but he did a very in-depth study. He was a journalist who did a, a real kind of a long and in-depth study about poltergeist activity and went uh, interviewed a lot of people, a couple of police officers, especially because, you know, police officers see a lot of weird stuff. And I remember one anecdote that he told that he's with some detectives. It was a family that reported to the police some major poltergeist activity. And I believe this this author said that there is a connection to young people, especially young women in their teens, where this seems to happen. And this happens, this happened to be the case at this house. The police showed up and he said, these guys are, you know, they're tough old grizzled detectives. They don't believe in this stuff. They've seen some weird things, but they, you know, spook stuff and ghosts and like, no, maybe not. The story that he was told was that there were three police officers, big guys, big, big, burly dudes sitting on the couch. And this couch lifted off the floor like six, seven, eight inches and either moved or dropped straight down. And these guys lost it. (laughs) Yeah. Because they were, they were right there. There's no way that could be rigged. There's no fishing line that's going to like lift that up and, you know, or hydraulic kind of stuff. They checked and there was nothing there. It was definitely unseen force moving a heavy couch with three heavy dudes on it. So to me, it's like, well, I guess moving big, heavy lead line coffins, like it's possible. I don't know what's impossible. All I know is that Yoda moved that X-Wing to get back to my Star Wars theme here. <laughs> Here's my point, but he Size has matters a not. Well, it does, though, because here's my thing. Remember, in the, well, he's battling Christopher Lee. I can't remember who he's battling. Uh, the, he knocks over the giant silo, and Yoda has to do... It's all he can do to keep this thing from from crushing everybody and yeah. himself. Remember that? Yeah. And that he, was even when the I X-Wing... Pro- that was bad writing. <laughs> well, here's it my matter. point about that whole, this whole you know ridiculous line of reasoning, is that, <laughs> uh, is that there are limits to power. It's like Yoda just can't... He can't move a mountain. That's too much even for Yoda. Moving the X-Wing got him tuckered out. He, he was winded. Yeah. Holding that thing off, it's like, you know, uh, that was enough. It's like, quickly move, because, you know, Yoda would not have time. You know, so he's, <laughs> he's at his limit. Yoda no, well, that's Yoda under stress. Time he's, have he's not. straining. That's, I think, yeah. it's more like... I, yeah. We're not going to get into the grammar of Yoda No, no, right we now, need but, to stop. We got to stop. No, but okay. So that how was how long that were we supposed my, to make uh, this? Because we're at twenty-seven story. minutes right now. Is that how That's long? That's probably Jerry that what he cut wanted? it down. I don't minutes. know if it's what he wanted, but you know okay. what? When you ask us to provide some material, like you should know what you're getting into. Yeah, you yeah. need to clear off some hard drive space. <laughs> I'm sorry, this was supposed to be ten minutes, but yeah, there you go. We get we get riled up because we love this stuff. Uh, quickly though, for you, Scott, was there any story from childhood that 
creeped you out? Was it Lydia and the bridge, the lady in white? Was there any story you remember? Um, I, you know, honestly, I'm from North Carolina. So when I was growing up, I was in North Carolina and I heard a lot of stories and there was Lydia's bridge, which is the classic, um, um, hitchhiking ghost, which we, we yeah. touched on Lydia when we did Resurrection Mary. That did creep me out, but I think, you know, what creeped me out even more was this story called the Mako light. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I do know that. Yeah. Just very quickly and briefly, it was these train tracks. You could go to these tracks that were uh, disused but still there, and you would mm-hmm. park at a place where the road still crossed the tracks. And if you looked way down into the woods, which were fairly yeah. overgrown, you could see this lantern swinging and yeah. uh, on the tracks, way down the tracks. And the story was that it was a um, a brakeman who had been on a caboose. And the train was going and there was other parallel tracks the other way. And he leaned out and the, another train was coming the other way and he got decapitated. Yep. And so the story is that he's out there looking for his head. And oh. I never saw it, them. Yeah. I never saw the uh-huh. Mako light. But my grandfather told me when he was alive, he's passed away now, that he had seen it many times. He would take dates wow. there and they would see it frequently, like <laughs> reliably. But eventually I seem to remember reading and I didn't look it up because you, you just... You just sprang this on me now, which is totally fine. I'm just yep. saying I haven't done any research. Right. But I seem to remember they took the tracks up and for whatever reason, probably to develop mm-hmm. the land. There's probably a condo there now, but like for whatever reason, they took the tracks up and when they did, it stopped appearing. Ah, so, so something tied and maybe that freaked to the me materials. Out. Yeah, yeah, the Mako light. It's somewhere here, and I don't even remember where it was in North Carolina, MACO. And the other place, there's another place in North Carolina that freaked me out, it was the Devil's Tramping Ground. Which oh, is like yeah, a circular yeah. area where nothing will grow, and people supposedly spend the night there and to try and prove how tough they are. And they wake up in the morning, <laughs> and they're still alive, but their tent and everything they brought has been moved out outside of the circle, and nothing oh, will grow in the circle. And the diameter of it is like forty feet or fifty feet or something. Yeah. So yeah, I love that one. The Devil's yeah. Tramping Ground. I forgot about that till just now, by the way. So <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to talk about that next Halloween, I think. Let's do it. 